Welcome down to my nine-foot homemade oak bar. Pour yourself a cold one. You are listening to Bucks in the Basement. My name's Chris, and Craig here is the biggest Pirates fan you'll ever meet. Let's talk Pirates baseball now. Welcome to Bucks in the Basement. Now I see the changes in this town. They change, they say one thing, but then the next day. Nine-foot homemade oak bar. Pour yourself a cold one. My name is Chris. His name is Craig. Bucks in the basement. 30 minutes of bucks for fans, by fans. There's so much we could talk about today, my friend, as we sit down here and we got the Hall of Fame vote coming out the, the evening after this show comes out. So we're, we come out on Tuesday mornings. This episode is coming out the morning that later on in the evening, we're going to see the Hall of Fame uh, look like a mess. It, it, there's no way they're going to get it right. Uh, there are guys that are in that shouldn't be in. There are guys that are out that shouldn't be out. The whole process is completely flawed. We probably should skip the entire thing. And we can also talk a little bit about the fact that the players seem to have realized that they're not going to get everything they asked for. It's almost like they went to the table today uh, as we record this on Monday. And I know they're going to talk again with ownership on Tuesday. And they said, uh, you know, that first proposal, that was our joke proposal. We don't really want free agency earlier and uh, all this revenue sharing. Let's just drop that down by like a third. Like they are giving in already. And I think that's why we're going to have baseball start on time this year. Yeah, I was worried, Chris, and you talked me off the ledge. I think it was probably like the last couple episodes to basically say that, you know, at some point here, I mean, the owners can sit out. The owners learned how to do it. I was worried about them, you know, being concerned about missing revenue or whatever it would be and, you know, not getting the ticket stubs on the first day. And they're pretty much, I think they were like, we can sit out for this long because we set out through a pandemic where we had like zero fans. Whenever baseball comes back, and especially if you miss a couple months, players, you know what, guys, we miss a couple months. You'll make a little bit less, but fans will just be so excited for baseball to come back. They'll pack our stadiums. Like we can, we can sit through this. I was really shocked that the the players let the years of free agency go so quickly. They didn't let go of arbitration yet, but I don't even know how much you can really, it's almost going towards the, the proposal that was made by major league baseball last week, which is in that two to three year, instead of having an arbitration, having like it determined by your performance or if you make the all-star game, or if you do so much stuff, you can get those bonuses. I think that it's going more towards what Major League Baseball proposed as opposed to the MLBPA. Yeah, well, here's the thing. You have too many players that really can't survive a work stoppage. You have a lot of young players that want to get out there and play, especially after they had they had 2020 taken from them. Like, imagine a younger player that had a year delay getting to the majors because of 2020 or didn't make a taxi squad, but now might be on a 40 man roster at this point. That guy is like, I'm not wasting any more of my career. 
Just give me something reasonable and I'm going to vote yes. And and the guys that that can hold out, a lot of them already have their money. So I just don't think there's greater than 50% of players in the MLBPA that are one, okay with sitting out, and two, don't have their money yet but are convinced they're going to get bigger money if they sit out. I think that the the vast majority would either rather play because they're young and they they want to progress their career and they already had this big bump in 2020 or they're they're guys that have already made their money and they're not they're, you know if we give in on a few things who cares. So because I already got mine. So I just think that the union doesn't have enough of a group that would hold firm for too long. I think the owners understood that and I think that's why we're seeing these these things happen. And the owners have to let the players save face in some way. So I would imagine that as this progresses now and really back to back, get together, sit down and talk things. That's a good sign. And and I think we're starting to see things happen here. I, the owners are going to try to find a way to, you have to let them save face a little bit. As long as the owners give them one or two things that they want, even if they're not the bigger things or make little adjustments to the proposal that they made that they're happy with, then the players association can come out and say, we negotiated this and it wasn't just basically handed to us. And I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah, and I was telling you, Chris, whatever it takes to get Wordle off of my screen, I don't <laughs> care what your score is. I don't even know what it is. I don't even know what Wordle is. Everybody's making jokes about Wordle. I, I see these things on Twitter and Facebook. I, I don't even know what it is. It's a smart man's word guessing game. I, not that I'm not a smart man. I just, I don't have the time for it. I don't get interested in those types of things. And once something becomes super, super popular... I actually probably hate it more. I was the kid in high school that if I found like some like cool band and everybody started liking it, I probably started hating it. So I'm not going to do Wordle. I don't care what your score is. I don't care if it was four out of six, five out of six. Actually, I hope at one day everybody just loses. And I also don't want to see my screen filled up with three seconds of Mitch Keller throwing 99 miles per hour and thinking that the man is fixed and talking about whether he's fixed or not when he's throwing in shorts and a t-shirt in a controlled environment and has no pressure on his shoulders whatsoever. Right. That's like bragging about the fact that you go to a pitch machine at a ballpark and you're able to throw 92 when you're able to wind up and fire that thing. And you're, you know, you're just trying to get the speed gun to go up. Look, increased velocity sometimes leads to less control. His problem is control. So I don't know why him pitching, you know, really fast means anything. To be honest with you, because if he doesn't have control, if he can't keep guys off base, if he's walking people, or if he's throwing a straight pitch, it doesn't matter how fast it is. So I don't think that that means anything. That that's You know what that is? That's There's not enough news out there because of the lockout, and we need something to feel good about. That's what that is. Yeah, and Chris, people are like romanticizing his the time when he came back in September and October like of last year when he came back up from Indianapolis, when I was out in Indianapolis and saw him get absolutely shelled by the Tigers triple A team. And yes, his October, his September and October was better, but it was still a 4.71 ERA. He still had a 1.74 whip. He couldn't control the fastball. 
we were getting excited over games where he wasn't giving up runs, but he was putting still putting a lot of guys on base and may have just been getting a little bit lucky to be able to get some of those outs. Now, he didn't give up the long ball, which is kind of nice, but I didn't see a whole lot of command in any of those games. And guys will tell you, like, it doesn't matter sometimes how hard you throw. It's like, if I can locate this fastball, it, it doesn't matter if it's 92, 95, 99. If I can locate it, that's the more important thing because you'll hear players a lot of times will say, oh, man, what's he throwing on the gun? And he'll be like, they'll be like, oh, he was, he's topping out at 91. They're like, no, 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 there's no way. It's got to be at least like 94, 95 because of the movement, because of the pin placement and the command of everything. So until I see it like on opening day where he comes out and actually puts together two to three good starts in a row, because we've seen it before, Chris, it's been the good Mitch Keller, the bad Mitch Keller. It's gone back and forth game to game. And we've been seeing that for the past two years. So until I see that on display, and guess what? If he's up to 99 and he's controlling it, you know what? We talked about it last year, Chris, before the season even started, that if a person like a Mitch Keller or a JT Brubaker can solidify themselves as at least being a starter on your team, hopefully towards the front of your rotation, but even if it's a middle-of-the-rotation guy, that can have a huge impact on the timeline of this because we all know the bats are ahead of, of the pitchers. So this could have a huge impact, but until I see it, I just can't get excited about this kind of stuff. Greg, I want to ask you a couple questions as a fan, okay? And then I know you got a big interview that we're going to throw in here, uh, and I'm interested to listen to it as, as well, okay? But I, I, just a couple of questions because I hear you talk about Keller, and I just want to know, I want to know more about what Craig Toth thinks about Mitch Keller. Okay. So first off, is Mitch Keller in the starting five to start the season? Gut reaction. Yes. Yes. Fangraphs doesn't even have him in the starting five. Okay. I know. It's interesting. They don't even have a starting five. You said something about opening day. Do you honestly believe he's the opening day starter? I don't know how they're going to go with that, Chris. I, I know a lot of the times, like, like last year, they'll throw it to like a cool and then like a, you know, Tyler Anderson, a guy that's been around for a little you while. Don't, you don't think Jose Quintana is the ace of the staff. Like I, I felt like he was brought in to be the ace of the staff, not because he may be the best pitcher at the end of the year, but that's the kind of guy that you throw into the game against the other team's best pitcher to take the pressure off your young guys so that they have a more competitive game and they're not worried about being perfect as they're trying to come up and get better. You know, like that's what I thought Quintana was for. But you are suggesting there's even a possibility a Keller could be your opening day starter. I mean, he's like the other than, you know, Quintana, he is well, he's the Pirates veteran. He's the he's the Pirates veteran of your staff. Do you think Mitch Keller will be a top end rotation guy and I'll give you one two or three in the rotation when this team is finally ready to compete do you believe it based upon what you've seen of Mitch Keller I want to say yes Chris because I I think the pedigree and and what what we saw in the minors that there's still something there but even if he could be the four or the five like I would want him to be in, in the one two or three but I still think I this were I said at the end of last year was that 
this is it. Like, he just has to go out and pitch. And if he starts to struggle the way he was struggling before, it's either triple-A or bullpen. Like, you just can't let him sit out there and do that. But I almost want to put his feet to the fire and say, okay, Mitch, you worked on this in the offseason. We saw all your cool videos you working with your 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 pitching coach, you know, back in Iowa or whatever. But it, let's go. Like, you have to hit the ground running. This has to be your year. Freezing my butt off in my basement, hoping that the heater kicks on here at some point in time. But we have a very special guest here for you. I reached out to him, and he was nice enough to come on. Former Pirates pitcher Jeff Karsten. Jeff, how you doing today, brother? I'm doing great, you know. Uh, just here in Florida, trying to get everything ready for baseball practice and prepping the house for my first child that's on the way. So... Oh man, congratulations. I had no idea. That's that's great. Good good news there, yeah, man. Plug it on you right now. Yeah, a little baby girl on the way in July, so I'm super stoked uh, to be a girl dad and you know gotta work on my, my shooting skills. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh yeah, you know, just wanna bring her into the best world and have her in a good environment and stuff like that. But yeah, thank that, you guys for having me. Look forward to the conversation we can have today. Yeah, abs- absolutely, man. And uh like I said, I, I told you before when we were we were prepping here, uh, the reason I reached out to you, and I think there's a lot of different things going on in baseball right now, the, the thoughts between old school mentality, new school, and different things that are going on. And, and you as a pitcher who, who came up through the Yankees system back in the early 2000s, now um, as a pitching coach at Berkeley Prep down in Tampa, and just kind of seeing like, when you were coming up through the minors, like what types of instructions were you given? What, you know, what tools were used to kind of help guide you guys? Um, and how would that differ to, you know, how you're, you know, molding these, these young men now down in Tampa? Um, I would think that, uh, I think early on in my career, um, I had Dave Island as a pitching coach who I think went on to be the pitching coach for the Yankees and the Mets and maybe the Royals. Um, he would always tell me that I had really good like location and I would like look back and I'm like, does this guy really watch me pitch? Like, I don't really feel like I locate the ball that well. Um, but they really harped on pitching down in the zone, even to the point where they had like strings set up to where nowadays you see a lot of guys that if they have good spin on the ball, they want to pitch elevated in the zone. And I think back to those times we played with a guy named Scott Patterson and he, uh, he would always get away with these high fastballs and they would only be like 88, 89. And thinking back, I was like, wow, I wonder if rap soda was around and you know, all that spin technology and stuff like that. If it would say that he should pitch up in the zone because he, the amount of swings and misses, I felt like guys would even look back and like, feel like, how did I miss that fastball? So I, like you said, I think the times have changed and what they've gotten is, um, I guess, factual kind of like evidence to what their eye is seeing so they can really structure their game plans a little more accordingly um, for who they're going to face. Um, I don't have that technology at Berkeley Prep, and I try and keep it pretty simple because um, the school I do coach at is kind of like the who's who of Tampa, and these kids go to pitching lessons and hitting lessons, and I'll be like, you know, I'm your coach, right? And they'll go to a hitting, a pitching lesson over the weekend. And I'm like, we play on Tuesday and you went to a pitching lesson on Sunday. So I battle with dealing with those guys and the overuse of technology a little bit sometimes, but 
Um, I think it's changed, and I, I think it can benefit guys, but you also got to look at who you're trying to help. If, if the guy's a real mental guy, do you really want him looking at all those numbers and, and taking a deeper dive into his own head and, you know, kind of messing things up? Yeah, it's definitely – I mean, there's there's the positives and negatives because are, are you going to become a, a pitcher? Or are you going to become a thrower? Or are you going to try too hard to, you know – change your game or change the the style of your pitching that that may not suit you as opposed to just going out there and and, and letting it rip oh 100 um one of our clubhouse kids actually posted on his snapchat the other day it was like albert Pujols's uh scouting report from the times when i was in pittsburgh and i was like i'd love to have that if you'd send it to me and he's going to send it to me but one of the things that was on these scouting reports and you have these nine squares and it would be blue yellow red and obviously you want to stay out of the red zones, even stay out of some of the, the yellow zones. You want to stay where they're cold and whatnot. What those things would show me was kind of a, a hitter's swing path. And for the most part, no hitter covers all like four up and away, up and in, down and in, down and away very well. Very, maybe Ichiro, the very Bonds, like very few guys. Like even I think Mike Trout struggles to elevate a pitch. He hits the, the ball down really well, but doesn't hit the pitch up. So if you notice these things in a scouting report, for me, I was like, all right, what pitches do I have that I can attack these green spots that are cold, these blue spots that are cold to help me have chances to win? And I think that if these reports were used a little bit and these kids were, not kids, these adults, these you know, pro baseball players were, <laughs> to have an understanding of like what they're looking at and like try and simplify it, I think it becomes a lot easier because then – if you don't do something well, do you have the utmost confidence in like practicing whatever you're doing? Um, and I know I don't. If I'm doing something that I'm not really comfortable with, I'm not the most confident. And that's what I see with some of these guys that I watch pitch. I'm like, the stuff's amazing, but when you look at them, inside it almost feels like they're just terrified. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of people, I mean, it's been brought out with you know Mitch Keller's is it a physical thing is it a mental thing it's it's what's going on you know with them inside them different stuff like that and that that leads pretty much right into you know what I want to talk with you about next is when you came up you came up with the Yankees first couple years did okay your first year struggled the second year came over to Pittsburgh started kind of putting it together, but then started backsliding a little bit in 2009, 2010. And then all of a sudden in 2011, you actually started to become, you know, the pitcher that you could be like, what happened, you know, during that time to be able to get you from, I mean, looking at it like a, a 4.92 ERA down to a 3.38 ERA and then working you know, until your injury in 2012 to kind of maintain that path? Um, it's going to sound kind of crazy, but uh, I think what happened was is I was on the verge of getting released because Ollendorf was coming back from the DL. They had called, uh, I think, Brad Lincoln up. And I kind of, you know, I wasn't blind. I kind of knew that it was possibly going to be my time for my time to be up in Pittsburgh. And at that point, I, I just remember thinking back to like a Cliff Lee article when he got sent down and he just talked about, I just want to have fun. And that was something that really, really resonated with me. Is like, if, if my baseball were to, career were to end today, did I have fun? And I think leading up to that point, I, I, ha, I ha, don't get me wrong, I play in the big leagues, I had a, a lot of fun, but performing, I wasn't having fun because I was so worried about the result. Yeah. So I would talk my, 
ourselves and I like, talk myself into a bad inning. I'm like, oh, I'm doing so good, but what innings, what, when's the bad inning going to happen? And next thing you know, there's a two or three spot up on the scoreboard. And I would talk myself into these bad innings. And in that year in 2011, <clears throat> some of the reporters would ask me, like, do you even enjoy pitching? And I'm like, oh, my God, I love it. To, like, I'm having the time of my life out there. If, if guys miss pitches, I would almost laugh to myself. And I'm like, oh, good thing he didn't hit that because I think that would have gone a long way. Or like, you know, <laughs> just having these inter- internal conversations where I was able to keep everything light and, and easy for myself and knowing that anyone in the stands would love to be in my spot. So don't put any pressure on yourself. Just go and do what you've done. I prepared myself in the dugout with my scouting report, with my catcher before the game, um, going over how we're going to attack guys. And then if we had to make adjustments on the fly, that's what we did. But I think it's a result-based industry unless you're a hitter. I mean, the hitters can fail a little bit and still be around. The pitchers, if you fail, you know, there's a ton of arms, especially with the minor league teams being cut. Um, over the last couple of years where they lost, you know, a good amount of arms in the system. So you really, really force yourself to try and create results. And I think sometimes we forget, you know, to have fun like we did when we were little and we had all the results that were successful. And also probably kind of trusting your pitches as well and trusting yourself. Yeah, you know what you're good at and, you know, and just know that, you know, these guys are big league hitters. If they hit the ball, they hit the ball. That's what it's, you know, there's going to be times where you just got to tip your cap and there's going to be times where you fool them. And then the next time you face them, you know, can you really go to that again? Because they're probably going to be looking for it. So you got to adapt. It's almost like a chess match. You don't want to be playing checkers when you're pitching to somebody. <laughs> that's a great analogy, man. I'm going to, I'm going to have to steal that. Everybody forget that the Jeff said that that's, that's, that's my thing now. Um, <laughs> but like I said, when I, when I first reached out to you and, and when we just talked here, I, I kind of got the idea to, to speak with, you know, somebody who, you know, pitched, uh, you know, a few years ago and, and how things are different now, because I was listening to the MLB network and I told you, I was listening to, to Jamie Moyer speak and, and he talked about a lot of the guys now it's, it's like having to add that, that third and sometimes fourth and sometimes some of these guys have five pitches, but none of them are, are really working that great. And going back to, to some of the more old school mentality of using your, you know, two best pitches uh, to be able and like focusing in on those to get a person out. Like what's your thoughts on, you know, we have a lot of players within the minor league system now that have two very strong pitches. And it's like, well, if they don't add this third pitch, then they're going to be a reliever and not that that's not successful if you make it to the major leagues, but do we really think it's necessary at times to add that third, fourth or fifth pitch um, in order to make a player a starter? Um, you know, I think AJ Burnett would uh, be the counter argument to that because he did pitch very well with that two seamer and, and the breaking ball that he had. Um, and then very, very, I mean, I think it was below 5% of the time using his changeup. I, you know, would you like to have three, four pitches? I did, and I think it really helped me. But at the same time, I had control of those three or four pitches that I felt like I could throw them at any time. And that's the thing. If you're adding a third or fourth pitch just to add a third, third or fourth pitch to add a look, now you got to start thinking, in my head at least, are those third and fourth pitches going to put me in a, in a bad count where I have to go back with these other things? And I don't care how good your stuff is. If, if hitters can eliminate, you know, certain pitches or – certain parts of the zone because you're behind the count and they know that, Hey, when he's behind two Oh three one or, you know, 
whatever the account may be that favors them, they like to go to this area. And they're, I'm sure with all this, the statistics that come out on pitchers that are hitters, like we can elevate on, on the hitter. Hitters have statistics on what the pitchers do predominantly in certain counts. And the amount of information available to these guys can be very overwhelming, but at the same time can really help them and put them in spots to succeed. So I think the question of the third and fourth pitch comes down to, you know, is this, like you said, is this guy, you know, really good at what he does or is, are his other two pitches very, very average? And yeah, it's important for him to add third or fourth pitch because my two, my one and two pitch for what I did, I thought were very, very average. Even maybe below, I mean, my fastball was below average, it was 88 miles an hour. So it was, it was, it was below average. My curveball, which sucked in the beginning, was actually a pitch that my high A coach was like, hey, I think you need to show me curveball to go with your slider. Well, I tried throwing it in the game and I walked the first two hitters and then I was like, screw this. <laughs> went, back to, went back to what I was doing and I threw a complete game with 10 strikeouts. And I was like, well, what happened? And I, and like you said earlier, you got to believe in what you do. If you don't believe in what you do, I don't care what you do. Like even with you and running the bucks in the basement, if you don't think you're going to be good at it, you know, like what's the point in doing it? Yeah. But, if, <laughs> you know, like I just feel like if we're going to go do something and try and put ourselves in the best position to succeed. So adding that third and fourth pitch may not be the best over time, you know, can it get better? Never give up on it. Yeah. But to just take them into the game and try and do that. Very, very few people can do that. Yeah. And I think that people uh, kind of downplay the, the skill and the work that it takes to, to add that third or that fourth pitch. Like everybody's just like, we'll just add a change up. Well, it's, Honestly, not that easy, right? Um, or was it easy for you? You're like, oh yeah, it was easy for me, man. Not not a problem at all. Oh my god, Craig, I got a story for you. Uh, we're playing the Giants, and um, that week I was like, my change is not really going well. And Daniel McCutcheon had like a split change, and he was my catch partner. And one day I was like, you know what? Sure, I'm going to use it today. I worked on it for one day, took it into the game the next day, and struck out two hitters. And I looked over. And Ray Sears has like his scattering book covering his face because he's dying laughing at the fact that I would just even bring it out like the day after I was like, hey, I'm going to use this pitch. <laughs> yeah, like they say pitchers aren't athletes. If I was drafted as a catcher, so I'm, I feel like I'm an athlete. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it's one of those things, you know, you got to know who you're, who you're working with. And if for me, I had the utmost confidence in myself. May not have shown it or portrayed it on the outside, but inside there was a ball of fire like burning. And, you know, I never wanted to be embarrassed on national TV. Like, you know, that if you go up a home run, that's going to end up on ESPN or somewhere or you do something stupid. I never wanted to be that, that guy. Um, did I give up home runs? Oh yeah. I get up a lot of them. <laughs> but I, I felt like solo home runs and two run home runs were the ones that, you know, were led me to, to be the pitcher that I was in 2011 because I stopped nibbling. I started attacking the zone, and I knew that if I attack the zone, even the best hitters in the league are hitting like 360, 350 early in the year, so they're going to get out 65% of the time. I'll take my chances, make quality pitch, and I'll, and I'll put my, my strengths up against theirs, and we'll see who ends up winning. Yeah, I, I just thought about this. I'm like, I've, I've had now you on, I've had Matt Caps on, and I've had, you know, Fort McHenry on, uh, who are all, I mean, Fort was a catcher in the majors, but then you and Caps were both catchers growing up. That's kind of crazy. 
<laughs> so actually, I caught my senior year of high school because our catcher started missing like elevated fastballs and he had his eyes checked and apparently he had something going on. So the coach is like, can you catch? And I was like, sure, why not? Did it for one year, got drafted by the Montreal Expos, and I was like, whoa, they think I can play baseball. <laughs> so, you know, I, I went to the junior college, started pitching, never caught another game in my life, and that was that. But um, I think it gave me a great understanding of what the ball looks like coming in. And, like, a lot of my high school kids are like, oh, my God, that's so nasty. And I'm like, guys, like, if you're telling me that that's nasty because the pitcher's seen it at the pitcher's mound, guess who else has seen it? The hitter. I'm like, the pitches that are nasty are the ones where you're like, God, that's not moving. And the catcher's like, oh, my God, that was a good pitch. Yeah, because that movement's happening so late that you're like, oh, no. That's what, you know, like when they show Roy Halladay, and they call it tunneling now, where everything's coming out of the same path of the ball and stuff. He was really good. Everything looked the same the entire way. But some of these kids want to see the, the movement so early on. But I'm like, the hitter sees that, too. And if the hitter sees it, that means earlier recognition for them. More times for them to lay off pitches that are really good quality pitches, but they they pick it up because the action on the pitch was happening early. So, um, yeah, just a lot of little things and little intricacies that, like I said, go into the game that we don't really watch. How guys take swings on certain pitches, if they're lunging, you know, where they stand in the box, where their practice swings are at, kind of, too, give you an idea of where they kind of prefer the ball. So, you know, a lot of little things that I would watch. I even tell my kids nowadays, I'm like, look at third base coach from time to time. And you know the take sign. Look for anything that's obvious. And if you see a take sign, throw that pitch right down the middle. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't tell you the amount of times where I'd be like, all right, here's a cheap strike. Because I was like, oh, they're first pitch out. They're not going to swing the first pitch for the majority of the time. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, a lot of those things that can help you put yourself in a good count and put yourself in a, in a spot to succeed. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's, it's, being smart about the scouting and and which players up there some guys are you know their first pitch hitters and and they're swinging at everything and other guys you know that <laughs> until uh, until they really start to dig in are they really watching the pitches that are coming in i mean they kind of are but they're they're more waiting for their pitch yeah it's you know um one player that i remember when and i'm sure you remember this in was it 2011 when McCutcheon got really really hot or 12. I think it was, he hit like 400 for the two months. I think that was 12. Was it 12? I think but it I remember like watching him hit at that time. And there was pitches that I felt like would barely leave the pitcher's hand and he would spit on him. Not even offer, not anything. I'm like, wow, like if he's doing that, he can see that like either his vision's like 2010 and he's got amazing, amazing vision or there's something that he picks up. And, you know, there's tendencies, there's, there's everything that pitchers do. So, you know, you just got to think of how good the pitcher really has to be to succeed at the big league level. Yeah, and you're thinking about when, when they're saying a guy's hot, a guy's hot. And, and, and definitely, <laughs> you can definitely tell when they're feeling it and when they're seeing it. But, Jeff, you know what, man? This has been an absolute blast. And just talking about, you know, some old times and, and getting getting your insight on everything that's going on. Uh, for anybody that doesn't, uh, give give Jeff a follow over there. He's, he's not super active on Twitter, but... He's definitely responsive to some stuff that's going on. It's uh, at Karstens27. Jeff, once again, congratulations on the little girl. That, that's awesome, man. And I hope to do this again sometime. 
Oh, most definitely. Hopefully, uh, after the start, when the guys want to start back up, probably after spring training, so I don't want to kill us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, the whole. So it's actually funny too because I've uh, I've seen Derek Shelton a few times. Uh, we have a, a mutual friend of ours. It's really good friends of both of us, and I've got to golf with him and you know talk to him a little bit, and then saw him at a birthday party and chatted with him a little bit. So I feel like Pittsburgh's in good hands, and you know it's just a matter of. All those pieces coming together at the right time, especially when um, we don't have the payroll that some of these other teams have. So, you know, always wishing everybody the best, especially you guys with your podcast and Bucks in the Basement. The next time you see Cat or talk to Cats in the cannery, tell them I said hello. Now I see the changes.